Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. It's the story of Jean Valjean and how he has changed literally in one evening, one moment. Have you ever been wronged in life? I mean, deeply like wronged, abused, or really kind of sinned against? It happened to Colleen and I when we were driving on the Garden State Parkway, of all things. Imagine that, going down the shore one summer. We're actually going the speed limit because I got the kids and, and Colleen are in the car, and I'm cruising along, minding my own business in the left lane, tight weekend, short traffic, and this black Camaro out of nowhere right up behind me. And he comes up a few inches behind me when he starts doing this, flicka, 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 flicking the lights because he wants to pass. And I'm like, okay, we're a little bit tight here, all going 65. Flicka, 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 eh, 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 lay it on the horn, and my blood starts rising. And Colleen, she sees him getting upset. She's like, easy, easy, easy. So, you know, I did the Christian thing. I'm a pastor. And also I, I started praying uh, for his destruction. You know, like take him out, you know. And uh, bottom line, traffic starts opening up just a little bit. And, uh, and he swings out and he revs his engine as he roars by us. He says, get the F out of the way, you bleepity bleep. And gives us the New Jersey salute, minus a few fingers. Boom, down, and like, you know, the kid's like, don't watch that, you know. Now, what's funny about it, you got to love New Jersey, because about 15 minutes later, we're, we're getting off at a rest stop, and we're in the right-hand lane, and the off-ramp is coming for, like, the gas station exit place, and who do we see behind us in the rear view? The Camaro Kid. See, we had easy pass, so he got stuck in the toll, and now he's in the left lane trying to get over three lanes because he's got to get off. He must need to gas or something. So he makes one lane, and I see him gaining, and it's like 100 yards, 80 yards, 50 yards. Gets over two lanes, and all of a sudden, he's in the lane next to us. Freeze it right there. You pray for moments like this, don't you? I mean, this was like, at that moment, I had, because literally, he stopped, he comes up alongside, and then pretending like we had never even met, he goes, can I squeeze in? Can I, can, I, can I get in there? And um, at that moment, I had one of three lanes open. I could have taken the lane of justice, right? Payback time. You're going to get what you deserve. Rules of the road. You cut me off. No mercy for you. If you stall on the side, I'll call a state trooper for you, buddy. But you are, that's it. You get what you deserve. Lane of justice. Second lane would be the lane of mercy. Mercy on a good day is showing forgiveness when someone offends you, right? All right, you abused my wife and kids. I'm the Christian thing. I'm going to forgive. You can merge. Go get your gas. We know justice, and from time to time, some of us respond in mercy when we're offended. But there is a third lane, a third way, that really is the thing that sets the Christian faith apart from every world religion. And it is the lane of grace. And grace is something amazing. We sing about it, amazing grace, but most of us don't really know what it means. It, the kind of thing is like, well, grace, God's nice. That kind of, not so much. Grace is not just something you say over a meal. In John 1.17, Moses, we're told, was given the law. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, 2,000 years later, we've been looking at the Old Testament, the law of God. But 2,000 years later, the Son of God, the Trinity, Son of God, Jesus, comes down and he introduces this new way, the way called grace. In Les Mis, the whole story turns when Valjean is caught by the police and he's brought back before the red-handed, the authorities bring him back before the man he assaulted and robbed. And the response of him is, unte- is telling. I mean, what would you do? Would you choose justice or respond with mercy or respond with this other thing called 
grace. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam, you know, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. When we are sinned against, our natural instinct is payback. That's what justice is. That's what the law is for. Punishment fits the crime. And he could have handed Valjean over to the law and he would have got, the punishment would have been swift and severe. And he could have, though, shown Valjean mercy. Mercy is when we actually offer forgiveness. Well, you've returned the silver. No harm, no foul, I guess. I won't press charges. I forgive you out of kindness. And the best of our world, at times, will show mercy, but... The scandal of Les Miserables, why is it the, the great longest running musical on Broadway? The scandal of the gospel of Christ, of Jesus, that sets apart Christianity from every world religion. Is that the bishop responds in a third way. A brand new way, when we're wrong, he chooses the path called grace. I give you the candlesticks. Anybody with two cents in their head knows that is a scandal. You don't permit someone to rob and assault you. And when they are caught and brought to justice, standing before you, you say, not only do I give you the silver, take this and go. You are a new man. I am ransoming you from evil and fear and hatred. I will pay your debt to set you free forever. It costs you nothing, but it cost me everything. What? You can see the scandal on the face of Madame Gillo. She's like, 
okay, the candlesticks. But what kind of message would that send? Grace. Extravagant blessing on a sinner when they don't deserve it and least expect it. See, the bishop knows a secret. Justice can teach a lesson. But only grace can change a heart. Which is why he gives Valjean a very costly, extravagant gift to stake him to a new future, a new identity with words lifted straight out of the gospel. He looks Valjean in the eye and he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred and now I give you back to God. I am paying your debt. You are free. And more than that, I am staking you to a new future. Free man, I know, thief, convict. The way you've lived, the things you've done no longer define you. You don't deserve this. But I am about to free you forever. Folks, I know of nothing that more powerfully depicts the gospel of grace which Jesus introduced when he came to this earth to ransom us from sin and evil and fear and hatred. Grace is not some wimpified kindness or religious word. It is an aggressive counterattack of overcoming evil with scandalous good. Offering a wrongdoer an extravagant, over-the-top blessing that strikes a blow to their heart. Now John can only stand and say, well, why, why, why are, you, are you doing this? He can't comprehend such generosity, such radical Love? In grace, the Christian God not only offers forgiveness we don't deserve, He gives us the candlesticks too. The gift of His Son Jesus and then stakes us to an eternal future as the scandalously free children of God. I call grace scandalous because if you grasp it, it's going to challenge your notions of what's fair, what's right, and potentially move you into some questionable company in your life. Let me break this down for you. Three things are really scandalous about grace. And the first is that grace is a scandalous embrace. If you're taking notes, they all begin with an E. Isn't that great? Grace is a scandalous embrace. If you're not uncomfortable with Christianity, by the way, you should be. Because if you truly grasp the kind of radical love that we are called to, if you're a church person, it's going to make you very uncomfortable about the kind of people God asks us to embrace. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn with me to John 8, chapter 8. It's on page 743 there. And as you're turning there, I'm guessing some of you are like, well, whatever happened to the Camaro kid who flipped you off there? Did you respond to him? With justice, mercy, or grace. And I'd like to say I showed mercy. Colleen was like, be nice, be nice. And, 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 and honestly, I looked in the mirror and saw my kids watching me. I'm like, oh, all right. So I put my hand in my blinker, getting ready, slow down, wave them in. But before I could do that, something else happened. I don't know if this was an act of God or just like Jersey justice, but this enormous ShopRite tractor trailer in the left lane comes bearing down on the Camaro kid and about an inch of his bumper goes, wah, wah, which must have startled him because he swerves back into the express lane and they go flying by the exit. And I'm like, see ya, you know, taking it off there. And I remember that happened. I was like, oh, Parkway poetry. Because as that truck passed him by, the trucker had his window down. He took both hands off the wheel and gave him a double barrel salute. What are you mother? Da, 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 da. And, and, and as a pastor, you know how that made me feel pretty good. Uh, the, way, 
which really, which really reveals my own inability to grasp grace in all the ways I live that are still broken and in need of God's healing. And that is a good context as we look at how Jesus applies grace here in John 8. Now, we've seen this passage before, but I want to show you the story behind the story. Verse 3 reads this. It says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. When Jesus came to this earth, two kinds of people were drawn to his ministry. On the one hand, rule keepers, religious rule keepers. They cherished the law. They felt it was their job to mete out justice whenever someone violated it. They were called the Pharisees. On the other hand, Jesus was often thronged by rule breakers. Like this woman who was apparently caught sleeping with a man who wasn't her husband. And as we know from last week, this is a direct violation of the the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. If you can imagine them throwing her at Jesus' feet, caught red-handed, sitting in the dirt like Valjean, and I, and I understand our culture is a long way from this, right? I mean, sex outside of marriage today is, is commonplace. It is celebrated in the mainstream media in many ways. But in first century Jewish culture, problems. <laughs> See, to be publicly exposed wasn't just shameful. It was grounds for punishments of the severest kind, Jewish justice. As the Pharisees note in verse 5, look at that. It says, in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. And it's true. In the Old Testament, her offense was punishable by death. Problem is, that's only half the story. See, the Pharisees were referring to the law found in Deuteronomy 22, which reads, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. Notice the emphasis on the man. (laughs) takes two to tango. But the Pharisees are Bible experts, so they know how to be selective kind of about the verses they quote. See, they're not interested in upholding the law. They're just in something else. Verse 6 says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. The religious authorities saw Jesus as a threat to the system of rules and punishments they'd worked so hard to uphold and construct. My question for you is, are you would you say you're more of a rule keeper or a rule breaker? If you had to skew one way or the other, we're going to actually ask you to answer that in your life group this week. More of a rule keeper, more of a rule breaker. So if you consider yourself a rule keeper, you like justice. And you wish, you think the problem with the world is if everyone could just obey the rules like I do. And <laughs> see, that's the trick. When you highlight someone else's spectacular failure, their spectacular sin, you begin, by contrast, to draw, draw attention to your own righteous living. Look at me. I'm not unfaithful. I keep God's law. I am not sexually broken like this scandalous wench. And that attitude of moral superiority is something I'm sure you've experienced if you've ever spent time in a church or hanging around with religious folks. In fact, maybe that's what's kept you from church. You have been judged or ashamed before. And uh, what's scandalous and makes religious people uncomfortable is Jesus' response. Because instead of condemning the rule breaker, he actually turns his crosshairs on the rule keepers. Why? Because it's actually that hidden inner arrogance, that, that toxic attitude of pride and judgment and hostility towards those who've blown it that Jesus condemns most in his preaching. Remember, John tells us the law came through Moses, but what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus showed amazing grace for people whose lives were shattered and broken and screwed up. But he reserved a battering ram of truth for religious folks. The Pharisees, the the teachers of the law who thought 
were heads and tails above everyone else and blind to their own hearts, polluted. In Matthew 23, Jesus famously let loose on the Pharisees, calling out their hypocrisy. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. In other words, Jesus is announcing here that keeping the rules, for instance, being precise and consistent about giving like a tenth of your income, that we call tithing. He's like, that's commendable. That is a noble outward display of generosity. Yet Jesus says, it's nothing if it is not matched by an inner spirit of generosity towards broken people. Humility of the heart. So in our context, this would be the person who attends church faithfully every Sunday and and, and cuts a check for exactly one-tenth of their salary. And as they put it in the offering buckets, it goes down the road to see the newcomer who I heard introducing herself to someone saying she was divorced twice. And she's wearing too much makeup, by the way. And I know it's spring, but her blouse is cut a little bit low. And as the pastor prays, thinks it's amazing who they're letting in here nowadays. Outwardly religious, inwardly toxic, judgmental, the opposite of grace. When Jesus says, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel, he was actually meant that literally. The Pharisees strained their water to catch little insects that may have fallen in there, microscopic, because they were unclean according to the law. I mean, we may not relate today to that, but we have our own unspoken code of rules and regulations in the modern church, don't we? In his brilliant book, which is just kicking my butt, it's called 12 Steps for the Recovering Pharisee, like me, author John Fisher writes this. He says, For today's Pharisees, certain cultural taboos serve the same purpose, such as smoking, drinking, dancing, attending R-rated movies, for instance. Abstaining from these things appears sacrificial, but most modern-day Pharisees don't want to do any of these things anyway. This system cleverly enables us to follow the law perfectly as we have reinterpreted it, while passing judgment on all those who don't follow it, can't follow it, or could simply care less about our little charade. Ouch. Truth hurts. In the church I grew up in, John Fisher would have been dragged outside and stoned. Jesus uses this to expose the toxic heart of the Pharisees who drag this woman, throw her down, and say, God, judge her. Condemn her. And what does Jesus do? He bends down on the ground to write in the sand with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, I turn the tables, inspect yourself. What do you see on the inside? In your own heart? Have you, have you kept God's commands in every respect? I understand you have been caught in a physical act like her. Great. Well, how about, how about uh, you want to apply the law? You've heard that it was said... Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully actually has committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, I'm actually the son of God, not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it and raise the bar on you Pharisees and expose how badly you need this too. You spend time reading Jesus' teaching in the gospel and you begin understanding why it was self-righteous church people who arranged his execution. To those who consider themselves rule keepers, Jesus used a battering ram of truth. But to those who were humble and honest about their failings, honest, he applied the balm of grace. 
with justice redefined that way, I mean, who could escape condemnation? No one. And so we're told simply in verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I love that image. Jesus and the accused alone facing each other, the priest in Valjean. And what does he extend? Has anyone condemned you? No one. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Grace is a scandalous embrace. The Son of God puts his arm around the shoulder of someone unclean who's made a wreck of her life. And it's like, what kind of religion is this? What kind of message is this sin? Scandalous. I say scandal because when you, when, you are, when you rub shoulders with someone of ill moral repute, your reputation gets smeared. And Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. People made a mess of their lives whose broken choices left them shamed and judged and vulnerable. I mean, is that scandalous? Here's a question. Is our church scandalous? Do we embrace broken people that way in the midst of their mess? See, people who don't go to church think that when God, God will accept them or they could go to church when they finally clean up their act. That's what the majority of people think. And that is religion. But grace is just the opposite. It's embracing people when they need it most. In the midst of their sin and brokenness, we don't offer judgment. We give the gift of grace. We tell the truth. You don't shy from the truth. You're going to need to leave your life of sin. This is not working out for you. But we lead with grace, especially when they have nowhere to turn. We don't condemn you. In many ways, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be the most scandalous place on earth, a dunk tank of grace for people whose lives are imploding. Instead of giving them judgment, we give them what they don't deserve nor expect. Welcome to the kingdom. You have nothing to fear. It costs you nothing to enter here because it cost him everything. See, grace isn't just a scandalous embrace. It is a scandalous expense. You guys know this. When a crime is committed, someone has to pay. That, Jean's freedom cost the bishop dearly. 2,000 francs, right? And a red welt above the eye. The only reason Jesus was in a position to offer grace to the adulteress, to offer grace to you, to me, is because he paid dearly. An incomprehensible price. I'll show you how this works in Scripture. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. The Apostle Paul knew something about the gift of grace. He invokes that word by the second sentence in literally every letter he wrote because it changed his life. And in Ephesians 2, he gives us an anatomy of grace. Let's read this together. Start at verse 3. He says, We were, by nature, all of us, objects of wrath. In other words, every one of us, rule breakers, rule keepers alike, have fallen short of keeping the law perfectly. That's the fact of human brokenness. We all deserve to be treated with justice. That's what wrath is. It's not like God just like being randomly angry. Wrath is saying the punishment that is demanded by a just God, that's, it, it's, it's, it is viable. There's a reason for this. But, look at this. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy. In other words, Jesus came to reveal something else. He's not just a God of justice. He's a God rich in what? Mercy. He skews towards forgiveness. That's his nature. God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by what? Grace you have been saved. You see the sequence here? There's justice, wrath, getting what you deserve. There's mercy, being forgiven your debts. But then there's grace, which is something altogether unexpected that stakes us to a new future. 
It costs the giver everything. Verse 6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms. We move from thief, adulterer, to brother of the Son of God. Child of God. Throw that up there again. Why? In order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in kindness in Christ Jesus. In other words, grace is a scandalous expense. In Les Mis, the authorities couldn't let Valjean go until the bishop sacrificed something dear. And, And when he says, take these two, I have ransomed you. You guys know what a ransom is? What's a ransom? It's the price someone pays to set somebody free. He says, this is the price, everything I have, for your freedom. Yours and Valjean's. The Bible says, the Bible literally talks about us being captive, slaves to sin. The objects of wrath. And God's justice demands payment. But instead of leaving us to face justice on our own, God steps in and says, I will pay the debt myself. And the ransom is very steep. It will cost me something extremely dear. The life of my son, Jesus Christ. This is literally what the cross is. It is the candlestick of Christ, the grace of God. On the cross, Christ sacrificed himself and suffered physically, emotionally, spiritually, so that we might know the riches of God. Like the priest with the red eye, grace bears the punishment in the place of the offender, pays their debt, and then gives them the gift of freedom. You watch the movie The Passion, you'll see what I mean when I say grace is a scandalous expense. But grace says God doesn't just forgive us. He stakes us to a new identity. We become no longer defined by our failures, our greatest failures, but a new creation. We be, you are a new creation. God lifts us up. Instead of being an enemy of God, we're called his friend. We have a seat waiting us to Jesus in God's eternal family. And it costs God everything. Through grace, though grace costs the recipient nothing, it costs the one who gives it everything. Very expensive. In fact, if you want an easy way to remember grace, this, you might want to define it like this. You might want to write this down. It's helpful to me. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, Jesus got the cross, but we get the candlesticks. He became poor for our sake so we might become rich and have a privileged position in heaven with the, our Father. And it's like, what kind of God does such a thing? Gives his son for the infidel... Only a God of scandalous grace. Folks, if you're ever asked, hey, what makes Christianity unique against all world religions? Here's one thing. Grace alone. C.S. Lewis was at a conference of comparative religions, and he was asked, what's the unique contribution that Christianity makes to the world? And, And people said, well, what about the incarnation? He said, no, there are other religions actually that have accounts of God's coming and taking human form. So what about resurrection? He said, no, there are actually accounts of life after death in other religions. And he sucked down his pipe and he said, you want the one thing? Oh, it's easy. It's grace. And when they began discussing other religions, they realized it's true. See, Hindus have a thing. They don't have grace. They have a thing called karma, which means what goes around comes around. Eventually, you will get what you deserve. Muslims have the strict code of law, and you know how that works. You break the law, the infidel is punished. Even peaceful Buddhists have an eightfold path they must follow by which you earn divine approval. Only Christianity dares to make the claim that God's acceptance comes free of charge as a gift that costs us nothing and costs him everything. It's a gift. The Greek word for grace is charis. It literally translates to gift. And you know, a gift you can literally just accept or decline. You can't do anything else. It's just offered to you. 
You can do nothing to earn it or deserve it. Paul puts it this way in verses 8 and 9. Let's actually read this together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, whatever you've been told, you cannot do enough good stuff to be accepted by God. He freely accepts you, but you have to receive that by faith in Christ. It's a gift. Grace is a scandal. A scandalous embrace, a scandalous expense, but finally it's also a scandalous expectation. See, when we're touched by God's grace, I know this goes back many years for some of you, we're meant to never recover. Before Valjean departs, the priest looks him in the eye and he says, never forget, don't you ever forget the price that's been paid for your freedom. When you're given a gift, you can be tempted, you can be like, well, you know, I should write a thank you note or try to pay the person back. God doesn't ask us to do any of that stuff. He literally says, you want to show gratitude? Follow me. Join my mission to give grace in a grace-starved world. Grace is a scandalous expectation of anyone who says, I follow Jesus. And this is where it gets hard and where some of you have been tuning out because you're like, oh, yeah, this is on grace. This will be good for some people. Nice little reminder. Thanks for that, Tim. This is where some of you are going to be challenged to take it to the next level this week in your life group. If you turn to Matthew 5 here, this is a highlight from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and it's going to now start making sense to you because Jesus gave a message about what it meant to live in the kingdom of grace. Here in Matthew 5, he assumes, he's talking to people who have received the gift of grace and, and once we have, he's like, I expect you to act differently and be forever changed. Now look at this, he says, you've heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. What he's saying is, I know you read the Bible in the Old Testament, that whole revenge thing, tit for tat justice, never really worked. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, by the way, tunic translates to the shirt off your back. If someone tries to steal the shirt off your back, give him your cloak as well. In other words, if he takes the silver, give him the candlesticks too. If he forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That's where the phrase, go the extra mile, comes from. In other words, now that you know what it's like to receive grace, I want you to give grace. Because in this life, you'll have plenty of moments where you are offended, where you are wronged, where you are hurt, where people step on your toes or knife you in the back. But now that you follow me, I don't want you to respond out of your flesh. That's the old creation. I ransomed you to become a new creation, a new man or woman. Don't hit back. That's justice. Don't just forgive. That's mercy. Go one better and hit evil head on with grace. If someone steals your silver, give them the candlesticks. So here's one of my questions to you. How could you extravagantly bless your enemy in a way they don't deserve and aren't expecting? Now some of you are like, whoa, wait a minute here. It's a scandal. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bust your sense of fairness here because grace always goes the extra mile. Why would you do it? Because you've been graced this way. When we respond in kind, doing what doesn't come naturally, loving your enemies, blessing them, hitting on evil with kindness, blessing when you're wrong, Jesus' kingdom advances, he says. He's like, that is how the whole grace-starved world will actually taste what the love of my Father is like and see my presence within you. Because our world is starving for grace. 
And it is in many ways the last unique gift that the church of Jesus has to offer. And it's just not our natural response when our, when our enemy wounds us. You don't see it much in the news, but when you do, um, when grace touches down, our world gets real quiet, gets silent, because they realize something supernatural is going on. Some of you remember what happened two years ago in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, the Amish schoolhouse uh, tragedy. Uh, that was like October 5th, 25 kids in a one-room Amish schoolhouse. A madman, 32 years old, at 10 a.m., came in with a 12-gauge shotgun and 600 rounds of ammunition. And in the letter he left behind, his intent was to molest and then kill all of the children. And uh, he sent most of the kids out, but he kept 10 young girls behind and lined them up in front of a chalkboard and barricaded himself inside. He was a madman. His name was Charles uh, Roberts. And uh, in his note, he said he was angry with God. When the police arrived, he said, that's it, I'm going to execute all 10 children. And before he did, two of the girls, they were 11-year-old twins, Barbie and Marianne Fisher, actually spoke up and said, Mr., shoot us and let our friends go. And that in itself, 11-year-olds asking to be sacrificed so others could be saved. But as you saw in the news, Roberts actually, at that moment, shot all 10 girls in the head and then shot himself. Two years ago, five of them survived. And, and, and that is unspeakable. As we've noted in God's story, evil is a reality in a world that is badly broken and just groaning for God's return. But what happened in the wake of that tragedy is what stunned a very cynical media. 36 hours after as the world watched in numb silence on CNN, the parents of the girls who were murdered did something incomprehensible. They're Amish, so they got in their horse and buggies. And one after one, they began in a line down the main street of the town, right to the house of the family of the murderer. And when they pulled up in their horse and buggies, they got out and took off their hats and knocked on the door of his widowed wife. And when she opened it, they extended not a fist, but forgiveness and said, we're here to forgive you because we lost our children. But your children lost their father. And we want to help you. Amish don't have a medical insurance. So a lot of people across the nation started sending money in to take care of the medical bills of the five girls who survived. And the Amish said, we want to split it. We want to set up a special fund to take care of the killer's widow and his three children. They forgave. They blessed. And they gave that family the candlesticks. Why? Their story is told in a book entitled Amish Grace. When they were interviewed on CNN, they said, um, we follow Jesus. They said, grace doesn't undo this tragedy or, or pardon the wrong, but he taught us it ends evil forever. Grace is a first step towards a future that is coming in which radical love will end evil. 
As you can imagine, not everybody uh, understood that. I mean, how do you forgive, let alone bless? And even the most cynical reporters had to admit something sacred, something supernatural was happening. And uh, it violates our sense of common sense, actually. And I understand, folks, that's a radical example. And God willing, none of us will ever face such a task. Friends, this is how the gospel of grace proves itself true in the eyes of a world that knows only sin and death and destruction and revenge and payback. Grace offered freely covers the darkest of sins and it is truly amazing. Amazing means to be shocked with awe and wonder. And it is the life to which each of us are called it is a scandalous expectation of anyone who says, I follow Jesus. Expected in big ways and small every day. So this week, let me scale this to size and ask you, who in your life might God be prompting you to give grace to? Who would you consider your enemy? Maybe someone who's hurt or offended or, or wounded you. Someone at work or a friend who betrayed you. Maybe it's your ex Maybe you're going through something with your ex right now and your flesh is crying out for justice. Let it, you don't like the idea of mercy. I mean, forget grace. <laughs> really? God didn't forget you. This was expensive and he embraced you when needed most and now it's an expectation of you in return. If someone strikes your right cheek, turn the other also. If he takes your shirt, give him your cloak. Get it? Think candlesticks. You've been ransomed. And now your life is marked by it forever. That's how the kingdom advances, folks. And that's how others in your life may taste. There may be their only taste. They may never show up at church. That may be their only taste of what grace is. Who could you grace this week? It's a question you're going to discuss in your life groups. And uh, I'll be the first to admit it is a new way of thinking. It is a new way of acting. I thought, like, what does grace look like on the, on the parkway? I mean, what would that have looked like? I told you about, you know, justice, you know, I hope to, you know, call the cops and book the Camaro kid. That is my inner Pharisee talking. I wanted to see his insurance premiums jacked so high, he'd never drive till he's 70. <laughs> told you about mercy. Maybe forgiving and pardoning his offense and let him in my lane. And on a good day, I might be able to do that out of my strength. On a good day. If I knew someone was watching. But Grace. What would grace look like? I mean, that, and I realize this is an outrageous notion, but quite honestly, I can't even imagine doing this, but grace would literally be letting him through off the exit and following him off the exit, which would probably freak him out, but then actually getting out of my car and walking up to him and saying, this one's on me, no strings attached, and grabbing the nozzle and filling his tank. <laughs> I told you grace is expensive, $4 a gallon. This is like, what kind of impact? Radical blessing might, why did you do that? To which you may reply, let's just say I've been graced. Grace to you, my friend. I know. It, 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 it. What could that stir in that man? I know. Shelter's like, please, it's New Jersey. This year, I am praying that we become a, like a scandalous church. That this community of Christ followers here in New Jersey, all the way to the ends of the earth, Melbourne, Australia, 
become like intoxicated by the power and the beauty of scandalous grace. That we actually learn to love and embrace broken people beyond reason with little concern for our appearance and reputation. That we give grace so freely, we're like looked down upon by all the modern day Pharisees and we don't judge them. We pour out grace on them too and say, God's spirit wins them freedom from the law. Can you imagine our church becoming that kind of radical kingdom community? A dunk tank of, of grace in New Jersey of all places to the ends of the earth. Dream with me that way. Stand with me. Pray with me. Thanking God for this amazing gift that's called grace. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Pray with me. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.